Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf, for the grace of God which is given in you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all, in all utterness and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, Aiden. I have to apologize. I just I realized this morning that um, Aiden had practiced all that at home with a new King James Version of the Bible, and then I put ESV up here. I don't have an ESV at the house. I do all my ESV digitally, so I didn't realize till it was too late, so I apologize for his reading of that and what was up on the board. This morning, we're going to begin looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. And as we look at 1 Corinthians, I want you to imagine a church that was racked by divisions, that there were groups of people that were following different people, following different men, and these different groups were arguing and bickering amongst one another. One of them is having an affair with his stepmother. Instead of disciplining him, the church boasts in his freedom in Christ to behave in such a way. Christians sue each other in secular courts. As a backlash against the rampant immorality, you have a faction of the church that's broken off that says that celibacy should be the way things should be done, whether married or unmarried. Still other debates rage about things such as men and women's role in the church, how past disagreements should be resolved, the worship assembly is a wreck, People are puffing themselves up arrogantly. The communion has become something, nothing other than a large meal. To top all of this off, a significant number of these immature Christians don't even believe in a resurrection. That is the church at Corinth. That is what we're going to look at as we begin, and I want to welcome those of you today that are visiting with us. We're certainly pleased that you could be here today. I hope that as we begin this kickoff in 1 Corinthians, that there's something that is edifying that helps you in your relationship with God. The church at Corinth had a lot of problems. And in the time of the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> Corinth was a, an important city in Greece. If you look at our map here, 
Corinth was along this isthmus that connected Athens and Corinth or Achaia. And you'll see whenever you look at all these different cities around here, you see some familiar ones, Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi. You see all of the churches, the seven churches in Asia over here, Ephesus, Miletus. Names that you're familiar with, cities that you're familiar with throughout the book of Acts and even letters that were written to these different churches. But Corinth was a very wealthy city. There was about 700,000 people that lived in the city of, of Corinth. And it was a very powerful city. It was a city that had two ports on each side of it because of this isthmus. And so people would come into these ports and they would need product transported from one side to the other. So people would take product and take it from one side and carry it over to this area over here. There was a lot of money and a lot of wealth to be made. As a matter of fact, now there's actually a canal that's been cut across that isthmus and boats can actually just go through there. But in the time of the Apostle Paul, they had to have people physically take those things and carry them across. So the church was comprised of some people who were wealthy, but there were also people who were poor. There were slaves that were in the church. There were two vices that plagued the city of Corinth. Desire for material things and sensual lusts of passion. Corinth was luxurious, but it was also immoral. It was the equivalent of what you would call a boomtown. It popped up relatively quickly. Now, the religion in Corinth was primarily they worshipped Aphrodite, which was the goddess of love. Corinth was built at the base of what they called the Acro-Corinth. The Acro-Corinth was about an 1,850-foot rock. And at the top of that rock was the temple of Aphrodite. Every evening, priests and priestess would come down from this temple to ply their trade. And when I say ply their trade... They were prostitutes. It was common for people to come into these ports in Corinth and go worship the goddess of Aphrodite, and you could worship through prostitution. Inside the city was a temple. There was a temple there called the Temple of Apollo. Now, Apollo was the god of poetry, music, but he was also the ideal male specimen, if you will. There were a lot of statues of Apollo around. There were a lot of images, not only of Apollo, but in relationships and having relations with other men. So homosexuality was also something that was prevalent in Corinth. Corinth was a city of what you would call people that were very well uh, aware of entertainment. You see a theater over here in the corner. And their entertainment was one in which people would come in and they would make these great oratory speeches and there were plays and all of that. So they had all the same things that we had. I want you to think about that as we think about all the problems that we just listed off that were in Corinth, in the church, all the problems that were 
a part of the city of Corinth. And then think of a statement that we oftentimes hear today. I don't think the Bible is relevant for the 21st century. It just doesn't speak to our intellectual, intellectual, technological, or progressive world. Ladies and gentlemen, Corinth speaks to everything that we've got and every problem that we've got in our world today. All the problems that Paul deals with, we need to understand that this book is up to date. It is contemporary, and it is extremely relevant for us today. Most of the problems that the church in Corinth were dealing with, we still still deal with today. And that reminds you of a couple of things. Number one, what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, that there's nothing new under the sun. There's no new sin. There's no new thing for you to be involved in. We're still seeing the same things that they saw in Corinth. It's also a reminder of another very important fact that Satan is still very active in the world today and his devices and human nature have not changed. Human nature is the same as it was 2,000 years ago in Corinth. And it's important to look at Paul's time and Corinth, before we get into our breakdown and look at, we go to Acts chapter 18 and we see that Paul came down from Macedonia and he's waiting on Timothy to get there. And he stops in Corinth and he talks about he went to Athens. After he left Athens, he went to Corinth. And that he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue in Corinth. And it says in verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, for now I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul just pretty much says, I'm done with you guys. I'm washing my hands of this situation. In modern day vernacular, he just said, peace out, I'm gone. I'm going to go talk to the Gentiles. They will listen to me. Later on, it talks about him going to the house of justice, who was a... Uh, a worshiper of God, Crispus, who was a leader in the synagogue, that his family believed, and that many hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Following this, God comes to Paul in a vision, and he tells him to continue what he's doing, to continue preaching, that no harm would come him. There was a man who was the proconsul in Corinth. His name was Gallio, and Some of the Jews had a problem with Paul. So they go and they wrangle Paul up and they take him to Gallio. In verse 13 it says, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Paul is going to give his side of it, but before he can open his mouth, this is what Gallio had to say. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. I want you to line that up real quick with Pilate's response when Christ was brought before him. These are the same accusations that the Jews brought Pilate when they brought Christ before him. The difference was Pilate was afraid of how everybody would spawn. Gallio was like, I don't have time for this junk. You guys go deal with this. I don't have time for it. 
So it goes on to say that they seized the man by the, by the name of Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. And I find that very odd. Because it says Gallio didn't do anything, so ultimately he didn't do what he should have. But they took Paul and they complained to Gallio about the situation. And then they beat Sosthenes. The man that you're bringing that you, you would think would receive the beating doesn't get the beating. Which reflects back to the very vision that Paul had said, that Paul, excuse me, that God had come to Paul and said, continue what you're doing, no harm's going to come to you. So Paul, that's the situation that Paul was in whenever he was in Corinth. Now, Paul stayed in Corinth about eight, 18 months before he would leave and go to Syria. He wrote this letter in about 55 AD, and he's writing it across the sea from a city called Ephesus. And this is what he, he's writing to them. This is actually his second letter. He refers to another letter, which we don't have documentation of. But this, so this is actually his second letter that he's written to them. Now, the way I want us to look at the book of 1 Corinthians, when we look at different book studies, there are different approaches that you take to them. Like when we do Romans, I would call that more of a theological book. There are a lot of theological things that Paul is dealing with. Galatians is the same way. Hebrews is the same way. So there is kind of a need to go verse by verse to break all of that down because those connect all together. But the book of Corinthians is a book about problems. And it's very themed, if, you're being, if I'm being honest. There are a lot of problems that Paul writes to them about. And he begins in talking about divisions in chapter 1 through 4. The root of their divisions, the cause of their divisions, how they would, should respond. And chapters 5 and 6, he's talking about depravities. There was a lot of sexual immorality going on in the city of Corinth and even in the church. And those things needed to be dealt with. Personal problems in chapter 7 through 10. Paul turns and begins to say in chapter 7 through 10, he introduces each one of those chapters with a statement, now this is what you wrote about. And he says there, so he's answering questions about different problems that are going on. And that's where things like them suing one another has begun to come up about different liberties that they had. And so he deals with those problems. In chapters 11 through 14, they're all about worship problems. There were problems with their gifts that they had in chapter 12 and chapter 14 talking about prophecy. And chapter 11 talking about communion and how they conduct themselves in the assembly. And then finally in chapter 15, problems concerning the resurrection. And he spends a, uh, it's the longest chapter in, in 1 Corinthians and he spends quite a bit of time dealing with the resurrection. And I find that interesting because whenever you think about the resurrection and you think about modern-day Christianity, modern-day United States, even those that wouldn't proclaim Christianity know of a resurrected Christ. That's a story that is common amongst our citizenry. But I want you to think about in the introduction of a resurrected Christ and how uncommon, and not only a resurrected Christ, but that you were going to be resurrected as well. So Paul deals a lot with that concept of the resurrection, not only in 1 Corinthians, but in other books in the Bible as well. It's something that they needed to understand. 
Now, those are the major themes of what you will as we break this down and go through 1 Corinthians. But the overall theme is that of love. And we don't think of that when we think of 1 Corinthians, but it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in chapter 12, Paul has been dealing with spiritual gifts and them boasting and them desiring different spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, he's talking about prophecies and teachings and conducting themselves in the worship assembly. And in the middle of that is this section about love. If you don't have love, all these different things that he talks about, it's useless. And I find that fascinating because we usually take 1 Corinthians 13 and you, you read it at almost, hear it at almost every wedding you go to. There's been a number of sermons that have taken that and kind of lifted it out of its context. And don't get me wrong, those things apply. They're completely true and they apply. But whenever you lift, leave it in its context in 1 Corinthians, to me it does two things. It gives us the true meaning of what Paul is talking about. The love that they should have not only goes and flows through all of their relationships that they have with one another, but it is also an outward thing that should be noticeable in their conduct and in their worship. The second thing about that that I really like, whenever we think about 1 Corinthians 13, it, it always amazes me God's ability to get a point across and how He does it. I was fascinated and when I did my study in Romans, and I'm fascinated again. Because from my perspective, the way I would begin talking about all of these problems is love would be at the beginning. But Paul introduces all of these problems, concepts, and ideas, and it's towards the end of the book that he says, talks about love. And how that it goes forwards and backwards throughout all of their relationships and even into their worship and how they should conduct themselves. It's extremely fascinating, probably not as interesting to you, but it's very interesting to me. So, <clears throat> as we begin looking at 1 Corinthians, I have to tell you that I heed a word of advice from Justin. Justin, in his lesson a couple weeks ago, was talking about not blowing past the introductory verses, which that I had every intention of doing that. I was going to jump right to verse 17, and we're going to start dealing with problems. But I took his advice, and I realized I was being a fool. That A, there was a beautiful two-point sermon right in the first nine verses. And B, that this was the thing, the foundation, in which everything would be established upon for the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, how could I overlook that, and how could I be so foolish as to overlooking that? So, a couple of things right out of the gate in 1 Corinthians that we're going to look at this morning before we start getting into all the problems, and we're going to set this foundation that Paul sets for the church at Corinth. And those two things were their position in Christ and their possessions in Christ. They were very important that they understood that. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Remember Sosthenes, he's the one that got beaten in Paul's place. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those 
sanctified in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice first and foremost that Paul called his, this church, he called it the church of God. And that immediately sets the tone that this is an institution that was established by God. Not only was it established by God, but that it belongs to God. Not only that it belongs to God, that it is an instrument of God. Men nowadays oftentimes revile and have disdain for their local congregation. But what Paul is establishing here is that it is the primary tool for building the saints and reaching out to the lost in the world. That is what he establishes and the importance that he sets in the church. He calls them, he says, to those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul said that these carnal Christians at Corinth, that they were sanctified, past tense. How could this be? Seeing that this church was so, for lack of a better term, messed up. How could this be? When you read about all the problems and the things that he's about to go into, but they were sanctified. The word sanctified means to be set apart. Paul is telling them that you have been giving, given a new position. That you were set apart by God for the purpose of Christ. Now Paul could have began his letter immediately getting to the point and immediately maybe even chewing on the Christians and the way that they were living spiritually. He could have been indignant for their conduct. He could have lashed out at them. Instead, he reminds them. He reminds them of a very important position that they have. That they have been set apart, sanctified in Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-9, through 9, it says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to, be a holy, to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin. I like this passage in Timothy but for multiple reasons. It refers to the power of God, and that immediately connects my mind to Romans chapter 1 and 16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all those that believe the Jew first and also the Greek. And this word power, how the number of times that you see this word pop up, it comes up in Corinthians, and they're all connected to this very same thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another reason I really like this passage, it sets, us, sets the tone of our position and where we are. It wasn't because of anything of what we've done or who we are, whatever great talents we have, but we're in the position we're in in Christ because of the grace of God. And then number three, it sets us an understanding of when this all began, that this was always part of the plan. It was established since the beginning of time as we know it. Before the ages began, this was God's plan 
to have a group of people that He sanctified, that He set apart, that He put them in a new position so that they could be used for the purpose and the cause of Christ in the local institution of the church so that that body could spread the message of God. They were saints, holy ones, set apart for a very specific purpose. They were set apart, and it's a reminder of the Old Testament in the temple and the altar, how that the priests were set apart for sacred use. And that's exactly what Paul is telling them. Paul reminded them positionally of where they were for Christ. He goes on to say, called to be saints. And unfortunately, in modern Christianity, sainthood is something that's looked at after you die. And time and time again throughout the New Testament, the fact that you are a saint in Jesus Christ is when you are alive. You don't live this good moral life and do all of these things right, and then after you die, you get a statue on top of your, your grave that says you were a saint and you're in sainthood. That's not how it works. That they were called to be saints together. Now, there's an underlying implication that needs to be understood here and that the church at Corinth needed to really understand also. Because of this, because you're called to be saints, you needed to understand that since you are saints, you should live saintly. If you're sanctified and set apart to be holy, guess what you should be doing? You should be living holy. If you're set aside aside to be in the position of Christ, your life should reflect a Christ-likeness life. He challenges them to the reality of their salvation in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Paul is, through these words at the onset of everything, he's offering a challenge. And as you read about the position, their position in Christ, there is a challenge, there is an opportunity for self-examination. Am I living saintly? Am I living as one that is been sanctified and set apart? Am I living holy? I have these positions in Christ. Does my life reflect that? He goes on to say, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter was not just a letter to Corinth. It was for Christians of every age. What they needed to understand is that they weren't just a pocket of believers living an isolated life and that nobody else was sharing in what was going on. What they needed to understand is that the Christians in Miletus and Ephesus and and Thessalonica and Colossae, all of those cities that were around you across the sea, they were all sharing in the exact same thing that you were sharing in. Whether it was the spiritual gifts which they had been gifted with, whether it was their position, whether it was their possessions, whether it was their suffering, 
The admonition is for them to understand that they were not alone. 2,000 years later, you and I share the exact same experience. We're not in a vacuum. We're not in a vacuum in our home. We're not in a vacuum in our congregation. That there are people all over the world that suffer and share in the same position and have the same possessions as we do. That makes the book of 1 Corinthians relevant. That makes the entirety of the Bible relevant. Paul drove home one other very important point in this statement. That you are called in every place in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is very foundational for all of the problems that he's going to have to deal with. Because he's identifying something that they had forgotten, which was the lordship in their lives. You have this position. You are sanctified. You are set apart. You're called to be saints with other people, but it is not apart from Jesus Christ. And that it is only in Jesus Christ. And this is what a part of their core issue was as we begin understanding and reading as we go through Corinthians. A part of their core issue is that Jesus was not Lord of their life. They had forgotten His Lordship. Which was a central thing they needed to understand and the authority that He had in their lives. At this point, Paul transitions into some important possessions that they had. In verse 4, it says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given in you in Christ Jesus. Paul thanked thanked God that the Corinthian Christians had become recipients of God's grace. One of the greatest themes in the New Testament is the grace of God. The book of Romans deals with it. The book of Ephesians deals with it. The book of um, Colossians deals with it. A central theme and one of the most misunderstood themes in the New Testament is that of the grace of God. Because unfortunately, one of the things that they forgot in Corinth and that is forgotten today, is where is it offered from and by who and through? Christ Jesus. You don't get to the grace of God without that. And that is the first principle characteristic of this grace of God. For by Christ you have been saved through faith, and this is not in your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When Paul wrote this to Ephesus, I wonder if he had the Corinthians in his mind because of the boasting that was going on. All of these wonderful things that they had and these gifts that they had in Corinth, all of this wealth they had spiritually, and the constant infighting and boasting that was going on. It was the pure grace of God which gave the Corinthians, their position, 
and possessions in Christ. What are some of those possessions? We've got some here. You can see them listed. But what are some more possessions that we talk about, we see about in the Bible? We see things like God's grace. Christians are called elected, called, redeemed, justified, reconciled, forgiven, recipients of eternal life, adopted into God's family, seated in the heavenlies, and blessed with all spiritual blessings. These are just a few of the possessions that Paul talks about. But throughout the New Testament, we have all of those possessions that are referred to over and over and over again. And they're all through the grace of God and Jesus Christ. You know, the church in Corinth wasn't caught up in this division about the Old Testament, New Testament law, like they were in Rome and Galatia. They weren't caught up in ritual like the church at Colossae was. Their problem in Corinth had to do with license. You see, they accepted the grace of God to such a degree that they thought it didn't make any difference in how they behave or how they acted. They reasoned that since they were saved, God would always deal with them in grace. Now, let's go back to our study in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 5, Paul deals with this subject of Adam and sin and the nature of Adam and sin entering into the world and death by sin. He goes on as he's closing out chapter 5, he's talking about the law had a purpose, that it was to elevate sin, that make us more aware of sin. And he goes on to say, but where sin became more, we became more aware of a sin, grace abounded more. What is the first question he says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? 6 and 2, the answer is no. How in the world could you who have defeated sin go back to want to living in sin? Now, I submit to you this morning that that very question that Paul asks in verse 1 of chapter 6 is dealt with throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians. That they were a living manifestation of that thought process and that question that Paul had asked. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because that's exactly what they were doing. The idea was, I have this license to sin because of this great grace that God has given me. Unfortunately, we still have that problem 2,000 years later. The understanding of God's grace and the impact it should have on your life. Not that we should continue to live the way we always lived and do what we've always done, but that you need to get away from those problems and sins in your life and turn towards the grace of God. Now, a bit of advice for you folks today. I know I look around this room today, and many of you, this has been your life. This is what you've always done. 
your parents were God-fearing parents, and I praise them and thank them for raising you the way they should. But to those coming out of the world, it is a struggle. It's not easy to shut off the valves of sin and all those things that have entrapped you and ensnared you for so many years. It's not easy. And problems come up because of that. And let me give you an example. When my wife and I first became Christians, we had this deluded idea that we only got drunk once this week. We weren't doing drugs anymore. We're, be- we're living better. We're making church, you know, maybe every other week. We're far better than we were. And that's a cycle and a mindset that Satan loves. Because you know how easy it is to pull somebody right back in from what they left in that mud and that mire when they don't have the proper mindset. My wife and I had a failure in our mindset. Our failure was not realizing that through this grace, we were not free to sin. And it's ironic when you think about it, We're always free to sin. We're always allowed to sin. We have that choice and that will that God has given us. But He wants us to understand that grace should be a motivator and a changer in our lives. He goes on to say that in every way you are enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, that they had spiritual wealth. So we're going to look on later on in Romans chapter, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where there's a lot of discussion about spiritual gifts. But Paul specifically picks out a couple of words here. A couple of, he says word and knowledge. Because these were two gifts areas that the Corinthians were having a problem with. There needed to be some maturity. They had these gifts that God had given them. The Holy Spirit had given them. And they were clamoring for one another's gifts. And there was boasting. And there was arrogance. We're also going to talk about that when we get to 1 Corinthians 12. Are those gifts still relevant today? Is it the same as it was 2,000 years later? Paul, up front though, wants them to grasp that the spiritual gifts they had were from God and that there was no reason for boasting or superiority. In verse 7, he said, in chapter 4 and verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So he's calling into the arrogance. And that first question I really like there. Who sees anything different in you? This speaks to the very grace that we've been talking about. And then the boasting and arrogance. This wasn't something that you came up with. This wasn't something that you did. This is something that was given to you. It reminds me of the parent and the child, and the child comes to school, 
and they've got the new clothes and they've got the new car and they're boasting and they're arrogant and you're looking at that kid going, your parents did that, not you. What do you have to boast about? You're struggling to get through junior high English for crying out loud. It doesn't make any sense. That's a child's mentality. And guess what? The Corinthians had the exact same mentality. It was very childish. Even as among the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, they possessed the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's something that they clearly need to understand that they had. And the evidence of them of that possession was the fact that there was manifested gifts in that church. They possessed the gospel of Christ. And Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the need for them to understand the power of what that gospel is and how it works. And he lays the road for that right here at the beginning. They had all the gifts, they had the gospel but they were still carnal. I imagine that their assemblies were quite exciting, but they were not spiritual. They were carnal. In verse 7, it says, so that you're not lacking in any, any spiritual gifts. They had all of these gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, all of the things that the Holy Spirit had given them. And they still were having problems. You see, these were tools that were meant to help them grow. But they weren't growing. The impact of Corinth was on the church in Corinth instead of vice versa. The city of Corinth was tearing the church apart when the church should have been changing lives in Corinth. That was the purpose of all of this. And that is the purpose that Paul sets this foundation upon as he writes to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So Paul, referring back to the beginning here, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you or make you strong to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So something that needs to be noticed here as he's written this first nine verses is the continual reference to Jesus Christ. Over and over as he's expressed each one of these points, it's in, through, or because of Jesus Christ. And he talks about the revealing of our Lord. And he's taught, this sets the stage for his discussion on the resurrection in chapter 15. An unveiling. On that day, Christ will be totally unveiled. He's giving them some words of comfort that He will sustain you or He will make you strong to the end. 
And this is a word that's actually a legal term. It's a guarantee for delivery of goods and services that God would secure, confirm, and guarantee the Christian to the end. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, like how he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a guarantee. That he is going to see the work in the church at Corinth. He's going to see the work in you to its completeness, in its entirety, in Jesus Christ. He concludes this section in this introduction by saying, You were called in the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is one of those verses that I would call a key verse throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. The reason for the problem in Corinth and the church there is they didn't understand the implications of their position. They didn't understand the implications of their calling and their relationship with Christ. And instead of that making an impact on Corinth, Corinth was making an impact on them, and they were forgetting this very core thing that was very important to them of their fellowship in Jesus Christ and in their partnership with Jesus Christ. And how that that fellowship and partnership didn't just go between the individual and Christ, but that it went throughout the entire church in Corinth. That they were one together in fellowship in Jesus Christ. And through the sovereignty of God, they'd been called into fellowship and a partnership with Christ. But they were failing to understand His Lordship in their lives. To me, this is one of those great declarative statements. You were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is a great declaration that Paul made to the church at Corinth, and 2,000 years later, he makes to you and I. What do you think about when you think about declaring something? I know, guys, a lot of you are married and you made a proposal to your life and you were declaring to that young lady that you wanted her to be your wife. In my mind, that's the most important step. The wedding ceremony and all that hoopla that goes on that after that, not as important. What is important is that declaration to that young lady that says, I want you to be my wife. Ever told you about my proposal to my wife? Ladies, prepare to be jealous. Guys, prepare to be ashamed. I met my wife in May of 1995. By August, I was like, this is the one. She came and visited me when I was in jail. My mom didn't visit me when I was in jail. She's got to be the one. The question of that process, I don't know how you guys got to it where you were like, well, when do I do it? And, you know, 
I was thinking Thanksgiving, Christmas, you know, some cheesy thing like that. In October of that year, we'd gone to Denny's. We both waited tables at Red Lobster, and we both worked a double that night. We went to Denny's after we got off of work. And we're talking about future plans. And at the time, I, we were talking about I was going to move to Dallas. I was going to go to mortuary school in Dallas. And she was going to move with me, and we were going to get different apartments, and we were going to live, and everything would be wonderful. But the subject of money came up, and, you know, it didn't really make sense for us to, you know, have separate apartments and have that extra expense, all that, yada, yada. My doofus self says, why don't we just get married? That was it. That was my proposal. And I remember after I was all said and done, my wife was like, so we're going to do this. And I was like, my proposal was a business decision. In that moment that I was supposed to declare that I want this young lady to be my wife for all the days of my life, I flaked out and I said, why don't we get married? And I've regretted it ever since. Not the marriage, don't get me wrong, but my opportunity at missing that declaration. I cheated her of that. I can't redo that. I can go 25 years. We just cel- oh, we're celebrating 26. I almost got it wrong. We're celebrating 26 this year. I could go through a big proposal thing, and it would meet some, but it's not the same. It's not that declaration of love. As Paul has made all of these declarations that they have had, their declaration of their position and declaration of their possessions in Jesus Christ, he's sounding it from a mountaintop so that they would understand how valuable they were to God, not only how valuable they were to God, but how valuable they were to building the church in Corinth that they needed to overcome their problems and realize what God intended them to be. You know, no greater declaration was ever made than when Christ was suspended between heaven and earth. Without a single word, He made the greatest declaration that it could possibly have ever been made. And that declaration was for you. It was for the church at Corinth, and it was for every Christian that would share in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. He declared His love for you. He declared salvation for you. In His allowing His own creation to murder Him, He made the single most greatest, that's not probably a way to say that, declaration that mankind has ever seen or heard. And that declaration is resounding 2,000 years later, and it is still here for you today. I want you to consider your position in Christ this morning. Are you in Christ first and foremost? 
Paul said they had the gospel and they had it for a reason. Because it was the power of God and the salvation. Do you understand that power that it has to save you and your soul? Have you submitted to that gospel? We referred to Romans chapter 6 earlier, and the answer to that question about sin and abounding more in sin because so that the grace of God may abound more, Paul makes a statement there. Do you not know that you were baptized in Christ Jesus? That was their response to the gospel. If you have responded to that, I want you to consider your position in Christ still. Is it one that appreciates the grace of God through Jesus Christ? Is it one that truly says, I'm sanctified and set apart to be in a position to help others and to spread the gospel? I know that sometimes we get in cycles in life. I know we have problems and I know we have struggles and sin. Thankfully, God is graceful and He's willing to forgive. This morning, we can help you. If you've not considered that position and are in Christ, we can help you with the waters of baptism. If you're in Christ and feel like your position is a little bit faltering here of late, we can help you with that. We can offer up sins on your behalf. We can have, give you a hug, understanding that those problems are real. This morning, if you would find yourself in either of these groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.